Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. This is my third whack at this intro. I often joke to my, uh, to my audience that I'm really bad at intros for whatever reason. Afterwards, everything else goes fine. And once in a while, I just like to put a little additional pressure on myself by telling the listener that this is my third or fourth whack at this. We're going to see if we can nail it. Today, I'm talking with Professor of Marketing and the Everett W. Lord Distinguished Faculty Scholar here at BU. Carrie Morwedge is joining me today. Yeah, I did it. That was, awesome. That was only three tries. Not cool. bad. Welcome to Boston and Boston University, Shane. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited to be here. So excited to talk to you. We're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects in the world today, which is cognitive biases. Fantastic. And um, I... You know, as someone who doesn't have any cognitive biases of their own, it has always struck me as odd to see the way other people act in these illogical <laughs> ways. So you must know all about That's that. That's an experience that most of us have, <laughs> and it's called the biased blind spot. So if you ask most people sort of how biased are you, then you ask them how biased are is the average American or your peers. Uh, we find in, for example, a sample of about 660 people, 85% of people say that they're less biased than their peers. <laughs> and one person out of the whole sample of 660 said that they were more biased than their peers. And about, you know, 12% say they're about as biased as their peers. So most of us believe we're in good company. And and so there is like one person yeah. that has really bad self-esteem or something. And Maybe their dog died that day or something. <laughs> yeah, had a rough day. Now, I wonder, as you say that, because I, I have, I've talked some on the show about some of the ways and, and possibly some of the evolutionary pressures in which we tend to overestimate our own abilities. So is it, is it, is some of it just related to, uh, because there's similar studies where people, 70% of people think they're in the top 50 percentile of driving or intelligence or so, so is, is that kind of maybe just acting along those same lines where, where there's kind of pressure for us to have maybe more confidence in ourselves than is warranted because that, that perhaps, uh, advances our, our social lives and status. Well, I, th I think you're onto something there. So there's certainly both drawing on similar kinds of judgments that people make. And when people are thinking about how biased they are, they tend to rely on introspection. So if I hire someone who is my friend and a person says, you know, was that a, might have that been biased by sort of your favoritism of this job candidate, I would certainly, I would examine my introspection and think about, did I consciously hire this person because they were my friend? And of course not. I hired them because they were personable and they were energetic and an expert in what I was looking for. Right. Mm. But when other people evaluate your actions, they look at your actions in terms of their behavior. And so they see, oh, well, you hired your friend. That seems pretty biased to me rather than these other exceptional candidates. And so the different kinds of sources of evidence that people are using when we're evaluating ourselves and evaluating other people tends to lead to these kinds of 
biased perceptions of self versus others. Hmm. And when you think back to these ideas about most people think that they're amazing drivers or that they can use a computer mouse better than anyone else on earth, they tend to think about how well they can do that kind of action. And they don't think about how many other people can do it just as well. And so that this sort of difference in like the evidence that we're using to evaluate ourselves and evaluate others gives rise to a number of these different kinds of biases. I want to meet the person who is exceptionally confident in their computer mouse abilities. That's about 90% of research participants. <laughs> that's a study you've done? That's not a study I've done, but it was a study um, Justin Kruger and some other colleagues did, and, and people think that they're... Just they're, mouse, they're What? They are exceptional mousers. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yes. That is... I mean that's silly. It is uh, silly. Because <laughs> I because I, I get the the other things make sense. Like yeah. like thinking you have a clearer perspective on life than other people do, or are a better driver, or something like that. But something no, like people, people are just painting beautiful arcs across their screen, you know, <laughs> every night with their that's with their amazing. mouse. Yeah. What's I was I was thinking on the way over. I was trying to think of what my favorite cognitive bias is might be confirmation bias i don't know it, it's it's the one that i've seen just in my own personal experience make drastic like the impacts on my perception in a way that after the fact going like wow i was really like it, that, that's something like a crazy person would think yeah and i think confirmation bias is so important because it tends to be what many of us think is the bedrock of many of the biases that we see. So if you think about what confirmation bias is and how it influence, how we selectively search for evidence that supports our beliefs and how we selectively interpret evidence that supports or disconfirms our beliefs mm. um, and how we act on that kind of evidence, that underpins a lot of other kinds of biases that you could map onto it, like anchoring or egocentrism, different kinds of biases that are related in, in terms of their output, right? So what's really interesting is that we we um, started really looking at confirmation bias in the context of this project that we were doing with U.S. intelligence services. We we're trying to make people less biased. And one of the biases they were really interested in was confirmation bias. And we started looking at the various kinds of forms of confirmation bias. And there are about five or six paradigms that people tend to use. Mm. And some of them involve like testing a rule, other ones involve like picking different options um, and other ones involve looking at different kinds of evidence. And we found that although each of these kinds of paradigms is internally coherent, like they don't tend to um, predict performance on the other paradigms. So it seems like confirmation bias is more of a description of the output of judgment processes or the process by which people make judgments rather than like a particular cognitive process. Mm. So we don't see a lot of like, if you look at most kinds of um, different measures of a single bias, they'll often map onto like what we call one factor or like if we do a factor analysis, most of the, most of the variance in how biased people are across these different measures is explained sort of by one dimension. And we look at confirmation bias. We actually see it's one of the most complex kinds of biases because there's basically a dimension that we see for each kind of way that we've been measuring it for like the last 40 years. Hmm. Well, like I said, it is my favorite one, and I've actually never heard of these five different paradigms before. Give us give everything you, like, you can. My on. top three, yeah. So um, one you could think of as um, uh, 
when we, we test hypotheses, we tend to look for evidence that would confirm the hypothesis. And so like a good example of that is the waste and card selection task. And so you're asked a question like, um, test the, test the rule that, um, every card with a vowel on one side has an even number on the other. Mm -hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. so you're showing some cards, there's four cards on the table, two of them have letters and two of them have numbers. And then, and the letters could be a, B, two, and three. Right. So now if I believe that the rule is if there's a vowel on one side, on the front side, it should have a even number on the back side. Most people turn over. What do you think? Right. If there's a vowel on one side, there should be an even number on the other side. What do you think the most so, popular choices are? So the most popular, and I'm supposed to know this. You're, too, well, you're supposed. Well, uh, we're but, testing but, A, B, uh, two, and three. Right. So okay. which which two cards do you think most people turn over? Um, I my guess is they erroneously pick two, um, hoping that there's a vowel on the back, but that's that's the opposite of what the rule was, or it, it doesn't. Because there's an even number doesn't necessarily mean that there's a vowel on the back. Exactly. The other way around. Yeah. So most people turn over A, which isn't right. a bad selection, right? Because if A doesn't have a even number on the back, that violates the rule, right? Mm -hmm. But again, as you pointed out, most people also turn over two, and that doesn't give you much information about testing the rule. The, the real, the real sort of violation of the rule would be is if you turned over three, and then you found that the um, there was a vowel on the opposite side. Ah, see, I would have failed it either way. And I, and I've heard that study before. So, so that's sort of the most famous example of confirmation yeah. bias. Um, there's that's sort of in the cognitive psychology literature. There's also a very famous example from the social psychology literature where you're asked um, to test the hypothesis that a person's an extrovert or an introvert. Right. So I, someone might say, um, you know, Shane ask, Carrie, if he's an extra, like find out if Carrie's an extrovert, hmm. right? I'm going to say. And then you're given a battery of questions right. and some of them test extroversion and some of them test introversion. And you choose sort of what combination of questions you want to ask. Hmm. And what they find is that if you are asked to test, is Carrie an extrovert? You'd be much more likely to ask me questions like, do you like to go to parties or what would you do to liven up a party or what are things that you like to do to have fun out on the weekend? Right. So questions that would provide answers suggesting extroversion. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you're asked to test whether or not I was an introvert, you might be asked, you might ask me other kinds of questions like, do you, do you stay home and watch Netflix a lot? Right. So that might be, you know, uh, so even though you might do all of those things in both categories, I'm just testing for the one. Yes, I might be a complex, multi-dimensional person, but right. the, the nature you like of your party questions and, and Netflix and chill. Exactly, but like your the nature of your questions would give you evidence towards one of those facets mm. rather than the other. Okay, so that's the testing a rule, and then the the third one that I think is pretty intuitive is um, that people have different kinds of weighting of information when they're depending on the decision that they're making. And let me give you an example. So the Eldar Shafir has a really interesting paper from 1993 where he's asking people in one study to make a custody decision between two parents, right? So there's a, there's a divorce and you're determining who gets custody of the child, who's the primary caregiver. And parent A sort of is average on many different kinds of dimensions. So they have like a pretty good rapport with the child. Like they work reasonable hours. They have a relatively active social life. They're, they're normal on many dimensions. Parent B on the other hand has a very active social life. 
they work really hard, but they also are very close with the child. And so there's sort of a, a bunch of ups and downs for that parent. And so the, the way the custody is determined in one condition is they're asked, to whom do you award custody of the child? So who, get, who do you award custody, right? Mm -hmm. And most people pick parent B. Hmm. And in the other condition, he asks people, to whom do you deny custody of the child? And in this condition, most people pick parent B. Uh -huh. Right, so that's a problem, right? So if you ask award and deny, right, the framing of the question shouldn't change which parent gets custody, right? So parent B shouldn't be both awarded and denied custody the majority of the time. And it's because if you're thinking awarded, then you're looking at the hardworking aspect of the one. If you're, you're looking at the positive that. traits, yeah. right? So award is a positive framing. Mm -hmm. You would be more likely to look at the positive traits, like really close relationship with a child, you know, is a hard worker. If you're looking at the deny, you might even interpret like, hardworking might be like that person's not home that often, right? Mm -hmm. So there are different kinds of ways of interpreting the evidence based of the framing that you're bringing to bear on it. Are, are there any kind of everyday examples of, of that um, effect? Yeah, you could think about, um, you know, the way that different kinds of insurance, for, for example, might be framed. So you could say, do you want to um, forego this you know, warranty, or do you want to buy a warranty, right? So you could think about maybe all the cases in which you would have a problem with a warranty or all the cases which you wouldn't have a problem. Hmm. Um, I should have a catalog of these in, on hand, but I, I regrettably don't, so. There's so many, yeah. I, I yeah. try to, uh, um, maybe I'll put this on the website, but uh, it, th there's that huge um, image with the, that that circle of all the different cognitive biases yeah. and all the categories of them there's like 140 I, or something like yeah, that yeah I, I think you could just think more broadly there's a lot of examples of how people evaluate things differently when it's something to be lost versus something to be gained like healthcare is a great example mm -hmm. right before obamacare people were up in arms about having to buy healthcare mm -hmm. right being forced to get healthcare mm -hmm. and now the genius of Obamacare wasn't that like it had universal health care, but it just made everyone get health care. Right. Yeah. And now that people have health care, they're like, wait a minute, I don't want to lose this. Right. So right. like when you don't have health care and you're thinking about premiums and like all the hassle and paperwork that you'll have to go through to get health care. But once you have health care, you're like, wait a minute, like if something happens to me, I really need this. Mm -hmm. um, that sort of change, even if it's not even if it's only written to law for a temporary period of time and you get enough people to change that kind of default, hmm. um, really sort of influences how their, their behavior. And like one of the most famous studies in sort of the cognitive bias literature is one on defaults and um, looking at organ donation. Yeah, yeah. And the beauty of this study is they're looking through all these different European countries at the default rates. And if you look at some countries, their default, like the the number of rate, the number of people who are organ donors, is like eighty eight percent, right? Mm. Across like the swath of countries, the lowest is like eighty eight percent. And if you look at these other countries that are very similar, right, you'd see that their their rates of organ donation are around twelve percent. Mm. And so the crazy thing that's driving these kinds of different rates is not some kind of difference of like who's Protestant and who's Catholic or who's in Northern Europe or Southern Europe, right? Mm -hmm. Or who has a good football team or a bad football team. It's something about whether or not when you go to get your government ID, are you first, you're opted into, like you, you 
opt out of being an organ donor, right? right? Like you're an organ donor unless you say, no, I don't want to do that. Um, or when you go to the government ID, they say, do you want to be an organ donor? And you're not unless you opt in. Yeah, because checking a box is very, <laughs> very difficult. Then you need to think about things and uh, and make a decision to check that box, which is takes more effort than just uh, going with whatever the default is. Yeah, it could be effort. It could also be things like norms, right? Like you could expect that people think, oh, organ donation is a normal thing if you have to opt out or it's yeah. an abnormal thing if you opt in. Mm. You know, think about like the Chris Rock sketches with like losing your eyes or something. So mm. um there's just different kinds of ways that come to mind where uh, there's different kinds of attributes of the problem that come to mind based on the way the question's framed. Hmm. Um, so what uh, that was, did we cover three of the paradigms with confirmation? Yeah, bias? we did. Yeah. It, what, what are the other two? Um, so there's some about sort of in a matrix, which, which kind of um, information are you focusing on? Um, are you looking at cases that would, um, so if you think about, Think about any hypothesis that you're testing, right? So you could say, for example, um, did Trump commit some kind of um, impeachable off offense, right? Yeah. In this Ukrainian totally situation. Totally hypothetical. Right. <laughs> so so there are like four boxes in that problem, right? For evidence. Right. There is, you think about evidence for supporting that he did do this and that he didn't. And then there's evidence supporting that he was doing some kind of other action and he didn't do that other kind of action, right? So Republicans might say, Republican senators might say, or House members might say, oh, this is like totally normal. He did nothing wrong. This is the normal course of business, right? Mm -hmm. And so there's evidence that this is the normal course of business and there's evidence that that isn't the normal course of business. Mm -hmm. And then like, uh, you know, House Democrats might say that this was evidence of corruption, right? So there's evidence for corruption and against corruption. And so... You know, if you think it's a corrupt act, you'd be looking at the boxes that suggest for um, this was corrupt, right? And this wasn't normal business. And if you're thinking about this wasn't, this was like normal business, you'd say, look in the box that this was was normal business and that this wasn't corrupt, right? And so in that sort of grid, you're searching at sort of these two kinds of, two kinds of pieces of the evidence rather than all four sort of corners of the grid. Hmm. Please walk Sparky for me. No way. <laughs> I'll throw in a caramel frappe. Ooh, make it a large. Deal. Get a sweet deal. $2 any size McCafe beverage on the McDonald's app. Between you and me, Sparky, I would have walked you for free. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Offer valid through 4322 or participate in McDonald's. Valid one time per day. McDonald's app download and registration required. What about... Does this fall within confirmation bias of when you learn a new word and then you see it everywhere or I, you know, I have someone on to talk about sloths or something and I don't notice anything sloth related in my everyday life. But then as soon as I leave, I see like a sloth piece of art in some storefront window and I, I see the I yeah. see sloth things everywhere all of a sudden. The whole world's sloths. Yeah, I, I think that's that's sort of one of the underlying mechanisms that gives rise to it, but I wouldn't call that confirmation bias. I would call that more of an accessibility effect. Hmm. And so you could think about memory, um, you know, memory has what's called spreading activation. And so like thinking about slow animals might prime you to think of a sloth, right? Because slow and animal are associates of sloth. And so when those are cognitively activated, 
um, in memory, they're going to be more likely to spread activation towards related nodes like sloth, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you see a sloth, it's making that that um, construct more salient in memory. And so it's at a low, there's a lower threshold for recognizing it and having it come to mind. Mm -hmm. And so you might be more likely to, you know, if you, you think about like the thousands of advertisements that we see every day, like some of them are going to have sloths in them. Mm -hmm. And so you might be more likely to just notice advertisements that have sloths because you're the threshold for recognizing a sloth is much smaller than it would normally be. Mm -hmm. But the getting to sort of like the fifth kind of bias that we looked at or the fifth form of confirmation bias that we looked at, it is trying to think about if something's really salient, like, and we think it's a cause, how do we take that? How do we test that question? So, um, for, uh, for example, imagine, um, you know, we're, we're both talking about a, a mutual friend, uh, Pete McGraw, and um, Pete likes to go for a run often when he's when he's out. Um, and mm -hmm. Pete might come back and say, "I had a great run today. Um, I think it was like the banana that I ate for breakfast, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. Rather than the coffee or like you know something else, right? Or or the shower I took like before I went running, right? right. And so when that's when, a poorly timed shower, by yeah, the way. Yeah. <laughs> but knowing Pete, like, you know, it's, it's, it's a possibility, right? So, or you could say the view, right? So coffee, yeah. banana, or the view, right? Right. So, so if Pete thinks it was the banana, and we, we asked most people to test that hypothesis, are bananas, like, likely to improve your run, right? Mm -hmm. What most people would do in this kind of case, would they, they would continue, they would eat a banana the next day, Right. Um, and maybe try some other kinds of different things as well and see like, do I still have a good run? Mm. Right. And so that's a case of confirmation bias too, because when you're trying to test uh, a cause and you have multiple possible causes, right? It could have been the banana, it could have been the coffee or it could have been the view, right? What you want to do is remove the thing that you think caused the good run, right? You want to remove the banana. And then if you hold everything else constant, and you still have a good run the next day without the banana, you know it's not the banana, right? Mm -hmm. That's the way that you wanna do causality testing. You wanna remove the treatment effect, right? Mm -hmm. And see, do I observe the same kind of outcome without the treatment? Mm -hmm. um, and so that's sort of a, the fifth kind of paradigm that we really looked at. So uh, kind of related to my sloth example, but slightly different. Um, I'm, I'm wondering if this falls within confirmation bias there's more of this accessibility thing going on what about when people talk about say a synchronicity or or a sign or something like that you you go uh you know someone's like i have been trying to quit smoking cigarettes i was driving and i really wanted a cigarette and then i saw uh i saw someone uh, like a smoker with an oxygen tank like right when I was about to break, and that was a remind. It was like a sign from the universe that I shouldn't be smoking, and and uh, and you know can really feel that. But you're, I, I was here. We are talking about Pete McGraw, and then he he sends me a text or something. I'm like what the? How did that happen? How did the universe know we were talking about him? Uh, is that? Would you say that's accessibility, confirmation bias, a little of both? I mean, I, I think in those kinds of cases, if you have a belief in coincidences, there's lots of information that could confirm that, mm -hmm. right? And you're more drawn towards testing cases that confirm that. So that could right. be a case of confirmation bias, that there's a case that confirms it. Like uh, you can think about the secret, right? So a lot of mm -hmm. people believe that 
the way for things to happen or you have causal influence on the world by like imagining what you want and then it will appear right yeah and the, but and then the reverse side is like i was i was thinking about uh, um if traffic's bad i'm gonna be late for this interview today and because i put that out into the universe traffic was bad and i was late for this interview. right right and if you have that kind of belief in whatever kind of psychic abilities that you latently believe, right? <laughs> yeah. And you look for, you're looking for evidence that confirms that kind of belief and you don't think about all the other things that you thought about that didn't manifest, right? Yeah. Like you didn't win the lottery on your way home, to, you know, you, there's lots of other kinds of things that didn't happen. So, yeah, um, yeah. you know, that just focusing on that one kind of outcome could be a case of confirmation bias as well. E easier to start um, looking to quantum physics for answers to how this is happening rather than writing it off as a coincidence <laughs> in some cases. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Talking what, of, the, yeah. of the secret. Yeah. Um, I'm just having fun with the secret, folks. Um, I, uh, so, so confirmation bias is, is my personal favorite. Do you have, uh, uh, do you have, give me like a, a top three. Well, let me give you a, one example of why I think confirmation bias is so important and something we were doing with it. Okay. Um, so um, one of the most, so the, there are huge cases of catastrophic events in our nation's sort of history mm -hmm. that are related to confirmation bias. Um, one is the Challenger disaster. So um, if you look at what happened around the context of the space shuttle Challenger crash, so um, when um, before the challenger was set to launch um engineers at morton thicol actually were very concerned about the um strength of the o-rings and their ability their susceptibility to cold weather yeah right and so they had sent nasa the night before the launch a series of um uh fa faxes and graph with graphs in them that basically mapped out sort of what their case for the issues that were present in the o-rings and they basically gave NASA a list of the launches where they'd had um, signs of O-ring failure. So there was like dust behind the O-ring or there's actual like damage to the O-ring, mm -hmm. suggesting that like there was slippage there or there's a structural problem. And NASA looked at all these different kinds of charts that they sent over um, and didn't really see a pattern there. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the big issue there in terms of their failure of communication was that um, Morton Thicol had sent over only instances where there were there was damage to the O-rings, and so all of these instances were at lower temperatures. Mm. Um, they didn't send them the full data set and said, "Look, at lower temperatures there's failure; at higher temperatures there are successes." Right? So there's no failure, and so the if you if you stack these kinds of instances together. Um, you can see that there, as the temperature goes down, the likelihood of the O-ring failure goes up, and the 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 temperature at the the time of the launch of the Space Shuttle Challenger was much lower than they'd ever had before. Mm. Um, so I think it was like the mm. before that it was like in the 50s, and the the time of the launch of the Challenger was like in the 20s. Mm. Um, it's certainly below freezing. So um, you could think about the Norton Morton Thiokol engineers exhibited confirmation bias in making their argument. They just gave supporting evidence for like their here's like low temperatures and failure. They didn't say what are cases without failure. Right. And NASA looks at the evidence. They didn't think they didn't ask for all the data. They're like, we don't see a pattern there, but like maybe we need, we don't have all the evidence. We should look for cases of where there's no failure as well. Hmm. So that's sort of one sort of example of confirmation bias. 
And that example is now used as a business case in most kinds of um, MBA programs. Mm. Um, and it's called uh, Carter Racing. And um, basically what we ask our students to do in this case is act as um, the head of an automotive racing team. And they are incentivized to um, uh, race their car in a race. But the race is going to start at a very low temperature and your um, engineer thinks there's a problem with between like the engine um, and temperature and thinks that there's going to be cases of engine failure. And so if you look at the financial aspects of the case, they all suggest that you should uh, race your car in the in the race that day. But if you look at the cases of engine failure and cases without engine failure, they're presented in two different kinds of charts. And so if you just look at one chart failures, you don't really see a pattern there. But if you look at failures in cases without failure, you can see that there's almost certain to be a failure at the at the temperature at mm-hmm. which the race starts. Hmm. And so um, we actually um, last year we ran a study with almost every um, graduate student at HEC Paris, which is a business school in Paris. And so what we did was we had them play one of um, 2D biasing video games that we created for the intelligence services for the US government. And um, we announced that as just sort of a school-wide initiative. And then what we had them do um, was we inserted Carter Racing, this case, in all of their courses. And in, in one of, for each student completed it once in one of their courses um, during the semester, about 17 days later on average. Mm-hmm. And what we found was that people who had done the training before they d- took the case um, were about 29% less likely to make the launch decision. Um, than people who receive the training afterwards. And what's really exciting about that result is just like, oh, maybe that's, that seems okay, but whatever, um, is that um, a lot of the work around cognitive bias has assumed that um, it's really hard to actually change people's susceptibility to biases. So the literature up till recently basically read as cognitive biases are like visual illusions. So we know what a visual illusion is, but we're still susceptible to them. Mm-hmm. And so we can recognize that what we're experiencing is a visual illusion, um, or we can say that we are aware of visual illusions, but we're still subject to those visual illusions. We can't unsee them. Mm -hmm. And so cognitive biases are things that we can be aware of. And the way to really deal with them is to change the context in which we're making decisions. So this idea of nudging. So rather than, you know, Rather than get people to think about confirmation bias, for example, when they're thinking about whether or not to be an organ donor, we should just change the default from opting, you know, into opting out. Mm-hmm. That's the way to be effective, right? Um, and economists think, well, like, don't even bother with that. Just change the incentives. So, for example, if you want people to drink less soda, just tax them, right? Don't tell them that the like a bottle of soda has twelve packets of sugar in it. Just tell them that, like, charge them more for soda, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that those have been sort of the canonical ways that people have thought we should go about debiasing. We should take it out of the person's hands and yeah. put it into these kinds of pol- political or like, you know, firm wide. People of are going to screw up. We just need to build systems for, yeah. for these bumbling fools to go through and put, put bumpers on everything for them. Right. And, and I think that might be attractive to a policymaker, but what's so surprising to me is that all these academicians also subscribe to that kind of belief. And then it's like, why are you teaching these people about biases in their courses? Right. Or why are you writing books about cognitive biases? Because then if, if that's true, like it's just kind of like this is pure entertainment. Like our, our conversation today would be just for entertainment purpose. There's like no 
there's no benefit to anyone listening to it, right? Other right. than like they could might as well be listening to like you know Seinfeld right now as yeah. like our conversation. Like they have the same kind of effect on their lives. Like you probably like have more fun listening to Seinfeld, right? So it's yeah. like what what's the purpose of all of this? Yeah, if, if you're if you're learning a bunch about nutrition and exercise, and then you just never get out there and take care of yourself, why do you have all that information? Yeah. So so that was I, that was a little puzzling to me and um this work that we were doing uh is really exciting to me because what it does suggest is that uh, we found that we can reduce people's susceptibility to cognitive biases and doing that seems to improve their decision making at least in these sort of classic examples that we um, have been studying in that field uh, okay so so reducing susceptibility that's that's uh exceptionally important something that i really want to get uh, into quickly before we do that, um, could I ask a uh, related question when it comes to some of the, it's a little related to um, how the, convers- the conversation started, but if you take something like, um, say, uh, the negativity bias, people's, uh, people uh, perceiving more of the uh, potential dangers than rewards and, and that sort of thing, there's, uh, it seems like there's a you know, from an um, economist's point of view, this this seems really illogical. But if you talk to, say, an evolutionary psychologist, this seems like a actual useful adaptation because in in the broad scope of of life, that weighting of those potential threats benefits your genes more. Um, but something like a confirmation bias, the way we're talking about it right now, seems like it's something that is incredibly costly um to our individual lives uh, how how hasn't evolution gotten there gotten there uh, gotten its hands on on it is it um it are there benefits to our confirmation biases does it make some of our processing easier yes sir i certainly there is evidence that suggests that biases can be in many cases adaptive and so that's been a long sort of argument in literature and i think that's actually like um that sort of debate is kind of a spinoff of there's been a long going sort of debate in the literature between um, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Traversky and people sort of in that camp of work. And also and Gigerenzer, who's um, a professor in Germany, who's done a lot of work on heuristics and how heuristics make us smart and sort of. Um, the, the literature on cognitive biases has largely focused on how cognitive biases make judgments and decisions worse. Um, and the reason why we as scientists study these kinds of errors isn't because we think that they make people stupid, mm-hmm. but it's because they are ways to learn about how the system works, right? So if people never showed any kind of biases, there's many ways there's the their decisions and judgments could be made. But if you can study the mistakes that they make, the mistakes reveal the constraints of the system, right? And so if we can see sort of how our decision-making is constrained, we know sort of what parameters, what people can't do, and it helps constrain our theories about how they're making choices, mm. right? So on the whole, these kinds of biases may be helpful, and confirmation bias is very helpful in some kinds of cases. So um, in most kinds of sets of the world, like people don't have totally misguided beliefs about like causality, right? Right. Um, so if you got 
fired from work, you usually have a reasonable idea of like why you got fired from work. Right. Um, or if you're hungry, you usually have a reasonable idea of like why you're hungry. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, or if you're like made someone laugh, you have a, like your, your, your belief that your joke was good is probably accurate. Right. Mm -hmm. So those are confirmation bias is often adaptive. Um, but it can also be bad in many kinds of cases. Like if you are trying to hire someone and you end up hiring the same type of person that you always hire for a position and you don't consider people who look a little bit different or speak somewhat differently or have a different background, that's a problem. Right. And so it's these kinds of overgeneralizations that tend to be negative. Mm -hmm. Um, so on the whole, these kinds of biases can be very adaptive, but they can also be maladaptive under circumstances where like people know better not to use them, but they still rely on them as sort of, uh, um, crutch or sort of a shortcut to making decisions. Hmm. Yeah. And, and how much, uh, how, how much of this is just related to, you know, these rules of thumb, uh, just kind of make everything, uh, make a lot of our decision-making a little more efficient. I mean, I mean, it's certainly hard to evaluate every, uh, a, a lot of our tasks in life aren't, aren't maybe don't take the amount of, complex thinking as your your card study um for example you know much much of the world isn't some like tricky iq test yeah and and so a lot of these rules um, do serve us fairly well in a lot of cases yeah like if i believe that sort of tooth this kind of my toothpaste is the best toothpaste like there are very few costs to that right <laughs> right right of choosing that toothpaste over another toothpaste rather than like paying an extra like 30 cents right mm -hmm. so that's the cost i pay to be happy with my choice and yeah. that may be something I'm happy to pay. Right. Yeah. Um, but it gets into problems when we're making decisions about like whom to elect for government or right. like what corruption means or <laughs> right, like, should right. we launch the space shuttle or should we invade Iraq? Like those are big decisions with like really consequential outcomes that, that we'd hope to make with sort of like a less biased right. decision process. Hmm. Um, and, and that was actually like a huge challenge against some of our earlier work too, was whether or not by debiasing people were actually, first people said that this couldn't happen. And then once we started showing that we could debias people, they say like, well, now that you're debiasing them, maybe you're making their decision-making worse because the, you know, biases are adaptive in all these kinds of circumstances. So what, so are you making them like bad decision makers now? And so part of the exciting aspect of like our most recent study is suggesting that we're actually like improving judgment in this case. Hmm. So, uh, yeah, give me some examples. How are, how are we able to, um, uh, de-bias people? Um, so we, there's sort of two ways that we've tested. So I, there's more than two ways now, but like we started off with two different ways. Um, the government made sort of a, a video that, um, it had sort of like an after school special flavor to it. Uh -huh. um, where they would, there was a narrator who would tell you about different cognitive biases and show you an example of someone interacting or making a d judgment in a way that was reflective of that bias. And then it suggested mitigating strategies and you can download these for free actually off YouTube. So if you go to the IARPA website, um, and you look at, um, unbiasing your biases, you can find like both videos they are about half an hour each and they do de-bias people. Um, and then uh, we also made some work called Serious Games, um, where we worked with a defense contractor, Lidos, and we worked with a, um, a programming studio, uh, Creative Technologies Incorporated. And what we did there was we um, created 
two two serious games, which are basically like first person detective games and they're educational games. And so what happens in the games is you um, are trying to solve a mystery and there are three levels. And in each level, you're you're, uh, asking questions and making judgments as a result of the questions that you're being asked. And what we do in the three levels is um, ask people questions and put them in situations that are likely to elicit different cognitive biases. And at the end of each level, we give them information about the cognitive biases that we're testing in that level. And we also give them mitigating strategies, like how to avoid that kind of bias, and also uh, give them personalized feedback about their performance in the game. So like you chose, you know, card A and two, right? Like here's why choosing two was showing confirmation bias. Mm. Um, And so we're not actually giving them waste and card selection, like that problem, but we're giving them like the um, CSI version of that, right? Like, so the green pills were like marked ship to Denver. Like, Mm -hmm. do you, you know, did you, did you look for like Denver and the green pills? Right. So um, like that kind of thing. And then we give them practice afterwards in really simple kinds of examples so that they can use what they've learned in these sort of like after action reviews or like level endings. Um, and after action reviews, that's what, what they call like basically the end of a level review in, uh, in mm-hmm. these kinds of like military training kinds of things. So um, the games took about 90 minutes and the video takes about 30 minutes. And we ran, we ran about at least 900 people through each, each game um, and found pretty long lasting effects. So we found that um, the games had a pretty big immediate effect on reducing people's susceptibility to three cognitive biases in the first, in the first um, two years. And then we targeted another three biases in the second two years. So we did confirmation bias, bias blind spot and fundamental attribution error in the first, in the first round. Um, which fundamental attribution error is when you see someone's behavior, uh, people tend to attribute it to their disposition rather than the situation. So like if someone's grumpy towards you, you think it's because they're a jerk rather than because they had didn't have coffee that morning, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then in the second set of games, we looked at anchoring bias. Uh, we looked at um, projection biases and we looked at representative heuristics. And so um, an anchoring bias would be a case of, in, like when you think about an initial number, it tends to, anchor your estimate towards that number. Mm-hmm. So if I asked you, for example, um, what do you think What do you think the um, gestation period of an elephant is? Like uh, how many months is a baby elephant inside? Uh, it's roughly three years, I believe. It's like 22 months, right? 22 months. Oh, so yeah. So years. you're over. So yeah, most people, over. most people start at off at nine months and then they, see, I'm even supposed yeah. to know that I've yeah. had elephant episodes. Yeah. <laughs> I just knew it was really long. Yeah. Or if you think about like Mars's orbit, right? Yeah. So how long do you think, how many days long is Mars's orbit? Oh my God. Don't put me on the spot. I do not know about planets. Um, how many days? Let's say a thousand. Okay. You're over again. So yeah. So you, you might be an exception for anchoring, but um, uh, in most cases, people would think about 365, right? And then they would undercorrect from 365 up. Ah, I see. And so Mars's orbit is like the 800s, I think. So yeah. So they're, they usually don't, most people don't make it past like the correct number. Uh, yeah, I I usually um when when booking my uh 
shows and I, I reach out to venues. I do a lot of my own. I'm, I do a lot of independent venues, and I've I've found that uh, if I throw out the number of like the percentage of the door that I that I want, um, it works a lot better for me than yeah. letting them first pick and then trying to negotiate from their lower number. Yeah, if I just throw the higher number at them, oldest trick in the book, but still yeah, works quite well. That's a great anchoring strategy in negotiations is to offer the first number. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, so, what what are the how how long do these um effects last uh, yeah yeah because that's i you know i know so much about different aspects of say mating behavior and and sometimes if i'm like uh you know with my significant other we're we're having some difference about something i'll remember something about the stress response system that will help me diffuse the situation a little bit and then other times i forget all about that and uh and you know i'm swept away by emotions or whatever and uh and and forget about my many biases so yeah so I mean, we, we don't eliminate these different cognitive biases in people. But we certainly diminish them. Mm-hmm. And we find when we're test like we did test as long as three months out and we found that the effect was still pretty large at three months later. Hmm. So we, we haven't followed up and tested further down the line than that, but that it seems to suggest that it's enduring. Hmm. Um, and so we find that to be really encouraging. And there's certainly other kinds of things that we're trying to do now to, um, some projects now to sort of test more sort of long-term performance outcomes. Uh, what about, is there any kind of, uh, uh, anyone working on like an app or like a, a, a Fitbit equivalent of, of something that can kind of protect you against some of these cognitive biases in your uh, everyday life? Well, I've, I've talked to some people who are developing that, but I haven't seen those come to fruition yet. Mm. So it's certainly there's a market out there. And I think that the problem with that market, too, is that um, there are a lot of applications that claim to change more sort of fundamental cognitive capacities that don't show as much evidence. There's not as much as evidence that they work, mm-hmm. like expanding your like working memory capacity. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem with sort of developing an app towards reducing your biases and decision making is that it's often conflated with like these other kinds of yeah targeted interventions that are less effective uh, uh, like uh, assuming that just playing lots of sudoku is going to make you uh, a, br- a genius a higher yes. IQ or yeah something. um you just see the numbers just see patterns emerge everywhere and it, i mean even in a very kind of i guess optimistic uh from a from a futurist point of view of maybe we can start using artificial intelligence to eliminate some of our own biases which i'm sure there's all sorts of potential for that but um i mean aren't there always going to be biases all the way down i I mean even within you know a a lot of there's error management theory and engineering a smoke alarm where you're biasing it to be oversensitive so that uh, because the cost involved of a house actually burning down is much more than an annoying false alarm. And uh, isn't there, aren't we always, even as we're trying to create these kind of 
perfect programs for navigating our lives or understanding our financial situations. Isn't there always going to be, even in uh, uh, some perfect artificial intelligence biases within that? Yeah. And if you look at some of the, I think it's a great point. And if you look at some of the problems with AI right now is that AI is trained on human data. And so, and AI is also trained by humans. And so if you look at the kinds of decisions that AI makes, it's often showing some of the same kind of social biases that um, the makers of AI exhibit themselves. Hmm. Um, so there's a really interesting program over at, um, by some members of the MIT Media Lab where they find that um, um, if you're an ethnic minority, like AI has a lot harder time recognizing your face because AI is trained on like, like, if you want to run a bunch of faces through AI, who do you, whose pictures do you take, right? You take a picture of like yourself and the developers around you. And those tend to be like white men. Right. Mm-hmm. And so AI is like not bad at like recognizing emotions of like white men, but, <laughs> right, right. but you know, if you're a black woman, right? Like AI might have a hard time recognizing if you're happy or not. Right. And that like, you think about yeah. like, what are the inherent kinds of problems? There's like a multitude of inherent problems with that. Right. We have these incredibly biased, uh, humans making uh, making the things trying to make us unbiased. Right, or if you think about like how do doctors perceive the pain of their um, patients? Mm-hmm. So um, doctors tend to perceive their patients who are black as experiencing less pain from the same kinds of like negative health outcomes as their white patients, right? Mm-hmm. So um, if an AI is trained on that and it's including ethnicity or race in its judgments, right, or there's some kind of other parameters that give cues towards that, it may show the same kind. If it's using the doctor's prescriptions as a model, it may end up prescribing fewer painkillers to black patients, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, unless you're looking for those kinds of biases in the data, the problem is because AI tends to be really obvious. Like, it's very, it's very hard to like tell how the system's making the judgment, right? It, it picks up these patterns, but it's not telling you like the explicit rules that it's inferring. Right. Um, you may not recognize that AI is showing these kinds of biases. Hmm. So let's say we get to we get a couple of groups of people together. We get a bunch of uh, um, cognitive bias researchers and uh, and we we put together a, a little cocktail party with them and say some physicists. So you have two different groups of people that are well educated, intelligent, probably pretty conscientious individuals and you put them in a real life setting and and you record it or have some anthropologists or something like that watch watching it are would you say that people that are um, very familiar with cognitive bias research are uh, much less likely to fall for many of the cognitive biases or are they <laughs> are they still going to be falling for that, that's a great many? question that we don't know the answer to um, I can give you some anecdotes from my personal life <laughs> but um, but I we don't we don't have great data on that right now hmm. and that's a simple question that we should have answers to we do have some answers to um, sort of we do have some answers to that question Um we do know that we can, um, we do see that people who become highly trained or experts in a, in a field can often um, reduce their susceptibility to some kinds of biases. So believe it or not, for example, weather forecasters are actually pretty good at predicting the percent chance probability of precipitation. Mm-hmm. But what we don't see in these kinds of cases is that the experts can transfer that ability 
at probabilistic judgment to a new domain. And that's been like the big, one of the big kind of hurdles for debiasing research is seeing transfers across domains. Mm. So for example, if I gave a weather forecaster a trip, like if we brought them to our house and we played trivia with them and we gave them 10 trivia problems and we had them estimate how many they got correct, right? They would be just as overconfident as you or I. Mm. And so when they're estimating their percent chance of accuracy in this trivia problem, right? They're not importing all the skills that they learned from like probabilistic estimation of the weather to this probabilistic knowledge estimate. Hmm. And so that for a long time was one of the points where people were saying, well, debiasing, you can debias people in like specific kinds of skills, but you can't teach them more generally. Um, and so our work has been trying to address that as well looking at transfer from like one kinds of one kind of confirmation bias to other kinds of confirmation bias. We do see some evidence there, but we still don't know why we're getting transfer and people didn't get transfer before. Hmm. So just the short of it is that you would think that the cognitive bias experts might be less likely to show cognitive biases in their domain of expertise, right? Like if someone studies overconfidence, they might be less overconfident. If someone studies like risk perception, they might be, more calibrated with regards to like examining risk study. Someone's if someone studies confirmation bias, they might be more careful in terms of testing their hypotheses. Mm. Um, but the literature right now, it suggests that, you know, if you tested them outside of their area of expertise, like they might show the same kinds of biases as a physicist. Hmm. And isn't there some kind of expertise bias too, where, um, say, you're you're a Wall Street trader. You probably you do know more about the stock market than than the average person. But because of that, you overestimate how much you know about it and end up, uh, you know, doing just as poorly as as your average person. Is there things like that going on? Where, uh, you know, I I think that I. I, I know more about cognitive biases than just your average person on the street. You know, I've, I've read a couple books, had a couple interviews, and therefore I, I'm, I'm going to think of myself as less susceptible to them. And does thinking that uh, back to how we started this conversation in the first place make yeah. me more apt to, uh, to falling for them? Yeah, that's a good question. There's a, there's a really interesting line of research suggesting that people, um, overestimate their expertise because you need expertise to recognize how much you know, mm -hmm. right? And if you know a little bit, you don't, you know enough to like know that you know nothing, but you might, you don't know the full scope of like knowledge in a field. Mm -hmm. I think we're having kind of like a Donald Rumsfeld conversation at this point, but, yeah. but, but you could think about there are things that you know, you know, yeah. right? But there are many, and there are things that you know that you don't know, but there are many things that you don't know that you don't know. Right. Yeah. And yeah. so like you need expertise, you need a lot of expertise to know what you do know and what you don't know. Right. In, like the, everything like, that you do know and everything that you don't know. Like this Dunning-Kruger right. effect yeah. is wonderful. And, yeah. Um, and oh, geez, there's another related thing that is now slipping my mind. It'll come back to me. Um, so what can... What can your average person do? I I will uh, I'll encourage people to check out those videos if you send me some sure. links. Yeah, um, that would be great. But uh, what you know, within uh, we have a couple minutes left. If if there was one main takeaway, sure. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you 
here's a piece of here's a thing that anyone can implement when you're making a difficult choice mm -hmm. and it should make it make your choices at least coherent. I won't say that you'll be happy with them, but I'll say that they're coherent. Mm -hmm. Um, so a lot of, a lot of decisions are between like different kinds of options and I'll give you an example. So when my wife and I moved to Boston, we bought a house and we looked at, um, we were kind of crazy about it. So we had, we decided we we're going to look at houses over the course of a weekend. And then we just make an offer at the end of the weekend and try to be done with the whole process. And so we looked at 15 houses over the weekend and you could think that after you visit the 15th house, your memory of all those houses and all their features sort of blurs together, right? And so the problem when you're choosing a house, for example, is like house A might have better light and house B might have a better commuting time and house C might be cheaper, right? And so the way that you're evaluating all of these houses is not on the same dimension. You're not mm -hmm. thinking about the price of all houses and the price, like the amount of light in all houses and the commuting time. And like, do they have, you know, one or two bathrooms, right? And how much, how important that is to you. Mm -hmm. And so the same thing is true when you're looking at people to hire, right? So if you have three job candidates come in and, you know, this person has great experience, this person, um, you know, seems like there has like a right personality for the job. Like this person seems like they did really well in the interview. Um, how do you weight all these kinds of features? Right. So this person has good connections for your business. Um, how do you, you know, these kinds of attributes tend to stand out as like who's best on each thing and not as this person has like the score on this range. And so an easy way to reduce sort of focusing on just one of these attributes in your decision process is like to create a matrix. And so, you know, we could just take any kind of spreadsheet that we have and decide what attributes are important to us. So if you're buying a house, you might care about how much it costs, right? How good is a school district? How many bedrooms does it have? How many bathrooms does it have? Square footage, right? How far is it from your work? Um, you know, how, how much do you like the aesthetics of the house? How much, how nice is the outdoor space? Like, is it in, how much do you like the neighborhood it's in? Right. And then you can rate the house on all these different kinds of dimensions and you can decide like how important is each dimension to you and give each dimension some kind of weighting. Mm -hmm. And what we did when we were buying a house was we rated all 15 houses on like 10 different dimensions and then decided what, how much we cared about each of these dimensions. And then basically this created for us like a, a very simple model of like what our ranking of these houses were. Right. And then we're like, went down and we're like, we didn't like the house that the model liked the most. We're like, we can't live there. It's like, yeah, we had underweighted the aesthetics, but like the the second house that the model liked the most is where we live. Oh, okay. And uh, so it wasn't the very first one that you were in. in no, we didn't. Your... Yeah, we didn't wait the the like the first one was basically like living in like uh, like a hobbit hole. It was like not we, we could not live there. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. One one thing that I actually do use um, quite a bit because I'm a impulse buyer and I often need like various things equipment for shows and stuff like that and do i actually need it and one thing that i trick that i read about a long time ago is if you're going to buy something first imagining how much you're going to use it in your most ideal scenario this this uh, microphone will come in handy in every single show that i do and i'll be using this all the time and i could start new projects with it and blah 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 and then after that asking yourself how much you're you 
actually see yourself using it and then um, and then making the assessment from there because we often tend to overestimate how much we're actually going to use something that we purchase. Um, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think that kind of, like when you try to worry about those impulsive purchases um, along that line, like I think people often underestimate opportunity costs and that's what economists, like economists think that every time you spend if you spend like $15 on a Snuggie, you know, that was the best way that you could possibly spend those $15, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That Snuggie brought you more happiness than like any other use of that $15. Uh-huh. And that's just not how people think, right? You see a Snuggie on television, you're like, oh, that's that's fun. Like, I'll get one, right? And you don't think about like, oh, I could have like put that in my retirement fund and like in, in 30 years, it'd be $1,000, right? Yeah. Um, you know, or I could use it to like, you know, get coffee for the next three days, which would make me happier than, you know, having a Snuggie in the closet that I never use. Right. So, um, like getting you to think about cases in which you would use the thing, what else you could use, um, rather than like the Snuggie that you're thinking about purchasing or the microphone. Right. Right. Um, like that thinking about those opportunity costs can help diminish those. I find like another strategy that works very well. And I think this like is a interesting, like feature of modern life is to think about like putting something on a wish list of like things that like you want, but you can get in the future. Hmm. And so if you, you know, if you're like online and you're deciding like th- these look like a really cool pair of sneakers, you can just put them in your shopping cart and like not buy them. Right. Mm-hmm. And then if you really need, if you really need them tomorrow or like next week, go back and purchase them. But like, giving yourself that kind of cooling off period hmm. um, can help a lot. Hmm. Um, yeah, right now my, my snuggy collection is my retirement plan. I'm hoping they're going to vintage go, be real yeah. collector's items in the, in the, the future. T- tie beanie babies of like 2050. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, but I have my guests each week plug a nonprofit of their choice. Um, did you have one in mind? I do. Um, doctors without borders. I, uh, really admire their work and they're helping people who are in the most sort of dire circumstances, um, with little kind of support or, um, help from anyone else and and i would direct you to them uh so somewhat related i i saw um in one of the articles that you sent me it mentioned the book uh the checklist manifesto which uh which i read and is a really cool way of uh, in particular using it using them in medical industries other industries as well um to help some of the uh a doctor's biases and and create less errors in the hospital do you think that there's uh, uh is there is there a book or something you'd recommend that is um like the checklist manifesto but for everyday life rather than just like flying and uh and care are there any great like cognitive bias books out sure. there that are that are something that anyone could um uh, gain a benefit from yeah i mean i i'm i'm biased in my selection but i would say that um thinking fast and slow by daniel kahneman is a yeah. great book classic um, and i also like predictably irrational a lot by dan Ariely. yeah um and um the nudging book by um cass sunstein and richard thaler i think would be a good one to round out the three awesome well thank you very much carrie Morwedge, for joining me today this is thanks fantastic. for having me and uh and now we're all gonna go and make perfect decisions with our lives sounds sounds <laughs> excellent this is great thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people we'll talk with you next week Avenue, a podcast. <clears throat>
a podcast network.